Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29. And I do appreciate Bob teaching a class uh, on Wednesday night. Um, he taught you everything you could want to know about the blessings and curses uh, that are there in Deuteronomy 28. But we'll look in Deuteronomy 29, which continues along much of the same line. But uh, let's begin today by reading the first nine verses. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have eaten bread... You have, eaten, you have not eaten bread, nor drunk water, or strong drink, in order that you may know that I am the Lord your God. When you reach this place, Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out to meet us for battle. But we defeated them, and we took their inheritance, and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So keep the words of this covenant to do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Okay, Deuteronomy 29, this is emphasizing that covenant which God made with Israel. And the emphasis on this section is what God has done for the people, how God has blessed them and yet they don't have eyes to see nor ears to hear. We're going to try to explore a little bit more what that phrase means in verse 4. Does that mean that God was preventing their eyes from seeing and their heart from understanding? Was their lack of understanding God's fault or was it their fault? We're going to try to look at that contextually uh, in in just a moment, but He begins, these are the words which the Lord commanded Moses. Over and over, the Lord speaking through Moses. He gathers, in verse 2, all Israel. And he tells them what they have seen, what they have seen, and what the Lord has done. What the Lord did in Egypt, in verse 2, in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants. And the great trials which your eyes have seen and those great signs and wonders. I I tend to take verse 3. Verse verse 3 may just be continuing what the Lord did in Egypt. But it may be a description of what the Lord did in the wilderness. Because sometimes those words signs and wonders uh, are used for what happened there. But think of the plagues that God used to strike the land of Egypt. Think of how God divided the sea and Israel crosses over on dry land and uh, then God closes up the sea to drown the Egyptians. 
And then think about uh, all how in the wilderness he fed them with manna every day. All of these things are being highlighted. Um, Verse 5 I find fascinating. And this is the second time that we've been told this in Deuteronomy. But it says their clothes did not wear out and their sandals did not wear out. Now if they had worn out, there just aren't many opportunities to buy a new one. uh, New uh, things like this in the wilderness. And so the Lord provided for them. In Deuteronomy 8 verse 4, you see the same thing. And it's in the same kind of context. Deuteronomy 8 4, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. And it's in the context of the Lord feeding them with manna every single day. Now in verse 6, you haven't eaten bread, you haven't drunk wine or strong drink. I think this would have to be a statement if they haven't eaten just normal bread. They haven't eaten bread uh, as usual. The bread they received was bread that God gave them directly from heaven. The manna six days a week according to Exodus chapter 16. So God fed them every day and God gives them something to drink. They don't have wine to drink. They don't drink strong drink. But they did things like Moses hit the rock in Exodus 17 and water came out of it. He hit the rock in disobedience in Numbers 20 and water came out of it. But God has provided for them in marvelous, unparalleled ways, as verse 6 says, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. In order that you might know that He is God. And that phrase used a lot throughout the Exodus narrative. It is used about 50 times in the book of Ezekiel. That you may know that I am the Lord. And it it mentions in verse verse 7 and 8, mentions Sihon, mentions Og, mentions taking, defeating these kings and taking their land. And all of this is used as an argument in verse 9. All that God has done for them and all the ways he has blessed them is stated in verse 9 is an argument so that they would keep the words of this covenant that we, they would prosper in all they do. Now, I want to come back to something I said a moment ago. I want to come back particularly to verse, to verse 4. When it says, God has not given you, God has not given you eyes, a heart to know, eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Is the idea here that God is forcing them, is God keeping them blind? Is their blindness their fault or God's fault? Bob, you have your hand up. What what do you, what are you thinking? Okay, okay. 
Sarah? Well, I'm just wondering about the, the children who were born in the wilderness and who grew up in that 40-year period. And they, from their youngest days, they would go out with mama and gather the men. And whenever they needed water, somebody would be around to strike a rock or something. And they might not have seen in themselves the wonder and the okay. majesty of that. And the same with the clothes. They didn't know the clothes were out. They had a big shot coming whenever they got to the <laughs> Okay, okay. Um, I want to tell you one thing that really helped me, and, and, and I'm not, this is not to uh, minimize or disagree because I think you all have good thoughts there, but something that really helped me is to see the word eyes is used in those three consecutive verses, two, three, and four. It's used in each of those verses as well as the idea of seed. It is used in each of these verses as well. And notice in verse 2 and 3, you have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. So eyes seen, they saw what the Lord did. In verse 3, the great trials which your eyes have seen. Those great signs and wonders. Obviously verses 2 and 3 is talking about what their eyes have seen and what they have been allowed to see of God's works. But verse 4, I didn't give you eyes to see or a heart to understand or ears to hear. Obviously, God is not showing them these things and then willfully hiding them from them. I think the idea is God is showing you these things in verses 2 and 3, but verse 4 points to the fact that you have not seen in the eyes of faith. You've not seen in the eyes of faith. You've not heard it. You've seen it happen. And you can see something and not see something at the same time. You can see that it happened and miss the profound significance of it. And I think that's the type of thing that's being said. You have seen these things and you did not perceive how profound and and marvelous they were. Now sometimes... When people, when people refuse to see, when people harden their hearts and close their ears, in the Bible, that is attributed to God. It doesn't mean that God is working against the person's will, but it is attributed to God. Let me give an illustration. Look at Isaiah 6. This passage in Isaiah 6 is quoted repeatedly in the New Testament. Lord willing, we will encounter it soon when we see how Jesus spoke, why Jesus spoke in parables in Matthew 13, verses 14 and 15. But here in Isaiah 6, 
The Bible says, go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive, keep on looking but do not understand, rendering the heart of the people insensitive, their eyes dull, their ears dull, their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart and return and be healed. Now it's quoted there, it's quoted elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, in Acts chapter 28, verses 25 through 27, and this is only the beginning. This is one of the most quoted of Old Testament passages in the New Testament. But, but the point that, that the text is driving home the point the text is, is obviously God is not sending Isaiah out to preach for the express purpose of the people not understanding his sermon. God sends them out to understand. But when they refuse to listen, ultimately their hard hearts and their blind eyes are attributed to the Lord just like Pharaoh's hard heart is attributed to the Lord when the Lord tells him to do things that he doesn't want to do when he doesn't surrender to God. But there's a flip side of this. If God is said, if God is said to close the eyes and hearts of those who refuse to see of those who exercise their own free will in disobedience to God. Also, the Bible and the New Testament, particularly the Old Testament and the New, attribute the fact that when we do see that the Lord is behind that. Let me give you some examples of what I'm saying. Jeremiah... God, I'll just put it this way, God is behind repentance. In Jeremiah 24 and verse 7, Jeremiah 24 and verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me. For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me with their whole heart. I will give them a heart to know, to know me. In Jeremiah 31, 31, verse 33, But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, we can have other passages in the Old Testament that demonstrate that. But let's mention a couple in the New Testament. After Peter tells the story of how he went to the house of Cornelius and preached to him, in Acts eleven eighteen, the Bible tells us that they glorified God, saying God has granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. And then in Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter uh, two, Second Timothy chapter two and verse twenty-five, the Bible says 
with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 25. And remember Jesus' prayer, I thank you, Lord and Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants in Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26. Every time a person humbles their heart, God has somehow been working on their heart to get them to surrender to Him. That doesn't mean they didn't surrender of their own free will, but it does mean God was behind that through events or through uh, circumstances to bring them to repentance. If someone hardens their heart, then that is their responsibility and they are accountable for that. But at the same time, I thank you, Lord, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. If they don't have the heart to be moved by him and his word and the circumstances he places in their life, then they are not his people. Now, that may have made it more confusing instead of less. But um, any thoughts? Yes. This, this is no different from us today. This is just a great example for us to look back on because we're in our spiritual wilderness marching towards our promised land. And he tells us in the New Testament that we have eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, and hearts that don't understand. He also says... To think not what we will eat or drink or put on tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. So if we look back and see how he took care of them and really understand that, we'll know that he will take care of us yeah. through our wilderness towards our Absolutely. And we have to look at what God did for Israel and what God does throughout Scripture. And see it, and see it with understanding, understanding its implications for us. We have to do that. And that takes a lot of contemplation. Any, anyone else question or thought? Mike? Uh, I don't know, you had already mentioned verse 6, but I feel about the thing in verse 6 when you talk about you and I you think back to the garden. I mean, this was this was counter to what God told man was going to have to do. That he was only going to be able to survive by the toil of his labor and by the sweat of his brow. Yes. That's a good point. I mean, this was contrary to the way generally we have to work to provide for ourselves. And uh, that, that, is a, that is an interesting thought. Um, in verse 10, let's look at verses 10 through uh, 15. It says, you stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God. Your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, your officials, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the alien who's within your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. 
Now I had this as a footnote in my Bible. Uh, I won't tell you the specific passage. I'll ask you one that chops your wood and draws your water. What do you have a footnote to there in that text? Joshua 9. And what's going on in Joshua 9? Who is the one that has made woodcutters and water carriers? Gibeonites. The Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9. But that was a servile role. I think what you see in verses 10 and 11, that he's mentioning all of the people were there, all of the people were present from the highest to the lowest. He mentions in verse 10, the, the chiefs, the elders, the officers. He mentions in verse uh, 11, people like the alien within your camps, the one who chops wood to the one who draws water. But all the people are gathered. In verse 12, that you may enter into a covenant with the Lord your God and into the oath which the Lord your God is making with you today in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God with those who are not with us here today. I think when he says I'm making this covenant with those who are not standing here with us today, he is talking about future generations of Israelites who are to be born. The people are gathered from the highest to the lowest. He is making this covenant, this oath with them. And it will also encompass their descendants. I, I may have missed some here. But I tried to write down the times in the book of Deuteronomy where you see references to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see this beginning in Deuteronomy 1 verse 8. Uh, you see it in uh, chapter 6 verse 10. You see it in a references to them in 9 verse 5. And 9 verse 27. And you see it in 30 verse 20. As well as this reference right here in 29 13. God emphasizes His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to stress He is a promise-keeping God. He has done what He said. He has kept His word to them. We'll see in the book of Joshua that none of His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob failed. In verse 16, You know how we lived in the land of Egypt. And how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them. So that there will be not there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. 
In Deuteronomy, when the Bible talks about turning away from God and departing from God, the chief illustration of that is idolatry. You turn and you worship other gods. That was, in many ways, idolatry was, in many ways, the sin of the Old Testament. It is the one warned against most strongly. It is the one in get, into which Israel fell most frequently. And it is the sin that threatens their national existence like no others. Like no other. Now, when, when I hear that, when I think of that, think about how often it's condemned. I think I need to think about that more frequently and to see how that applies to us. Because I'm sure we're doing things similar that would fall into that category, perhaps. Notice how he speaks of these gods. In verse 17... Idols of wood and stone and silver and gold. What is the point of talking about the material out of which they're made? It's man-made. It's can't do anything. Mom, what was that? Yes, it, it can't respond to us. It is inanimate. Look back in uh, Deuteronomy 28 verse 36. Deuteronomy 28, verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. Wood and stone. Look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. Verse 64, moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which your fathers have not known. So, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, when it mentions these other gods, it frequently invokes the material out of which they are made to show they are crafted by men's hands, they are powerless to respond to our pleas and to our cries. I find it interesting too that in verse 17 we already talked about seed. And how the people saw what God did in Egypt. They saw what God did in the wilderness. But they didn't see with understanding. They didn't perceive the depth of what God did. But this term see is used here again in verse 17. Because they have seen, as they traveled among these nations, they have seen their abominations. And they have seen their idols. And unfortunately... That sin had an impact on them. And they walk after them and follow them. But if they do that, in verse 18, and the Bible describes, the Bible describes this process. If you depart from me, if you worship other gods, this will be a root 
bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood in verse 18. If there is any idolatry among the people, it is like a poisonous plant that will arise and destroy the people and pollute the people. Now, verse 18 is alluded to in the New Testament. Do any of you have a footnote here? Deuteronomy 28.18. Okay, Hebrews 12.15. Hebrews 12.15. And that passage says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Now, It seems like in Hebrews 12 verse 15, the root of bitterness is bitterness itself. The bitter root in Deuteronomy 29.18 seems to be idolatry. But in um, Hebrews 12 verse 15, the bitter root, uh, the root of bitterness is bitterness itself. And that that can come up and defile us. The Bible says, encourage one another daily while it's called today, lest any be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3 and verse 13. But let's continue this description of Deuteronomy 28. If you go and you worship these other gods, and in verse 19, it shall be when he hears the words of this curse... That he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord will never, the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him. But rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man and every curse which is written in the book will rest on him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity and from all the tribes of Israel according to the curses of the covenant which are written in the book of the law. Now did you notice that the word curse is used in verse 19? It shall be when he hears the words of this curse, it's used in verse 20, that every curse which is written in the book will rest on him. And it's used in verse 21, according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in the book. So the word curse is very common. Verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. Do any of you in verse 19 have a different translation for that word boast? Uh, Vicky, it says what? Sworn covenant. Okay, sworn covenant. Somebody else can give me a guy too. Bob, sworn covenant. David. Yeah, literally, it is blessed. Literally, the word's blessed. Blessed and cursed are the exact opposite. This is my point I'm trying to make. God is saying, you're cursed. And he's saying, I'm blessed. 
The Lord's will is going to win that in that time. One man thinks he can hide his sin among the people. One man thinks he won't be found out for his idolatry. He blesses himself and says, you notice there in verse 19, I have peace. That is one of the most important words in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. Shalom. He will have peace. Everything will be good. All will be blessing. But God said, I will bring against him every curse written in this book. And I will blot out his name from under heaven. I, I want to tell you something. A lot of times we stand up and teach and preach God's word. We have absolutely no idea how people are living in relation to that word. We can stand up and preach. You shall not steal. And everybody may shake their head and walk out. And we may assume everybody's living that way. And it may well be that everyone is doing the right thing. What I'm just stressing is if you're violating something like that or whatever it is that God really says in His Word, Don't think you'll escape. Don't think, oh, I just keep my mouth quiet and nobody will ever know. Well, they may not hear, but the most important to know is God. And the Bible says every curse written against him will rest on him. And the Lord will blot out his name. Now, to emphasize what a terrible thing that is, remember that the the whole law of marrying your brother-in-law was so that the late brother who didn't leave behind a descendant, that his name would not be blotted out in Israel. Deuteronomy 25, verse 6. The Amalekites had done horrible deeds and they had attacked Israel and the weak and the straggling. And God said, I'm going to blot out his name from under heaven. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 19. But God says to this one who thinks they can cover their idolatry because they live in the midst of a people who are faithful, God says, I'll blot out your name from under heaven. Okay. This will lead to sweeping away of moist and dry blood. And what I gather from that is here we have one individual who's being proud in himself. But he's going to affect others. He's okay. going to impact those who are trying to tonight and those who aren't. Yeah. 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 So those that need others, I think it's 
Yes, and it is hard for me, and in just reading that verse, verse 19 in the New American Standard, to get the transition. I will have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. But the, the, the next part may not be part of his quotation because he doesn't intend to destroy the people. But the next part is the Bible just emphasizing the consequences of his sin. But I think what Bob is saying, it is emphasizing the consequences of his sin. But, but I recognize in verse 19, uh, it's, a, it's difficult to read as it was worded in the New American Standard. And, I, and, and um, maybe some other translations might clear it out, but it, but it sounds that way to me. One statement, though, really catches our attention especially in light of all of Scripture, where we see God is pictured as being a merciful and gracious and forgiving God. And that is, God says in verse 20, Deuteronomy 29, verse 20, that the Lord will not forgive. Now that statement terrifies if if we're thinking as we should, recognizing that we all need forgiveness. Here are some statements that are similar to that about God not forgiving. Exodus 23, verse 21, uh, you find uh, Joshua 24, verse 19. 2 Kings 22, or excuse me, 24, verses 2 through 4. What does it mean the Lord will not forgive when we have such beautiful promises of forgiveness in the Old Testament? Just like the New. I think this may be connected to the end of verse 19. I have peace though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. God's not going to forgive us. As long as we keep walking in defiance and rebellion to Him. It may be connected with that. It may be connected with what went before it. God will not forgive because the person is hard-hearted and refuses to repent. In some of these passages, and maybe even in this passage, but particularly in 2 Kings 24, what is striking is the Bible says the Lord would not forgive, and it invokes the name of Manasseh, who seems to be forgiven personally. I think the point is sometimes that even after forgiveness, the consequences... For sin or nothing. Don't you think about the life of David. David committed adultery. The Lord took away his sin. That's what Nathan said to him in 2 Samuel 12 verse 13. The Lord has taken away your sin. But he did not take away all the consequences of sin. He was forgiven. But still the child born to Bathsheba died. The Lord raised up evil against him out of his own house. 
and his neighbors slept with his wives in the sight of all Israel. He still experienced the consequences of sin. And I think the statement the Lord will not forgive in this context either refers to experiencing the consequences of sin or just the stubbornness of the heart that refuses to repent. But God will single him out for adversity. Now, we're going to see the word see again in verse 22. Verse 22. They've seen the great works God's done, but they didn't see them in the sense that they understood them. They saw the idols that the nations made and they worshipped them. And one day, the nations are going to see their devastated land. In verse 22. Now the generations to come who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord afflicted us it will say all the land is brimstone and salt a burning waste unsown and unproductive and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah Adma and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath all the nations shall say why has the Lord done this to this land why this great outburst of anger notice all the references to God's anger God's wrath in verse 25 in verse 24, the question was asked. The nations are asking, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? In verse 25, the answer. Because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshipped them. Gods whom they have not known and to whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in the book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in fury, in anger, and in fury, and in great wrath, and cast them into another land as it is this day. Look at how the lack of productivity of the land is described in verse 23. It is unsown and unproductive and there is no grass growing. It is described in horrible, horrible terms. How is the land of Canaan generally described in the book of Deuteronomy? How is it described? Robin, how is it described? Milk and honey in particular. That phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey, is used at least six times I've got in my notes. Your task before Wednesday is to memorize each of those six verses. But anyway, but six times a land flowing with milk and honey. What a contrast in verse 23. What a contrast. This is going to be unproductive. It is going to be unsown. It is going to be a land like Sodom and Gomorrah. And foreigners will pass by. And your sons will see it. And they will ask, what happened to this place? What happened? 
and the answer, they forsook the Lord who brought them out of Egypt and served other gods. And therefore God's anger and wrath are poured out against them. Even the devastated land, the unproductive land will be an evidence of God and of his judgment against sin. Now in the Old Testament, this is said several times about the land. This kind of thing is said in Jeremiah 19 verse 8, for example, about the land. What other building place is this used up in the Old Testament, this kind of statement? That one day people will pass by this and they will say, what happened to this place? You know what I'm talking about? Jose. Uh, it may be said with other nations as well. I'm talking about in Israel, it's said of the temple in 1 Kings 9, in verses 6 to 9 especially. Uh, I was particularly centering on things in Israel. Remember Solomon just completed building the temple. They just had the opening day ceremonies basically and dedicated it by prayer. And God says, if you are unfaithful, that there is going to be a day that there's, this is, there's not going to be one stone left on another. And people passing by said, what happened to this great house? And they, they forsook the Lord to serve other gods. Any questions right there? Or comment? Yes. Uh, first, he says, you see Some of them are, were specifically identified in verse 22 as the foreigners. But in verse 21, your sons who rise after you. So some of their sons, some foreigners. And so, yes, apparently even the bad things Israel do, does, God can use as a way to wake up the nations to their sense of responsibility to him. Well, in a way, as far as the starting point, uh, I I, I would say more that it is a point which can serve as an object lesson. But it's interesting to me that in Genesis 17, even from the time that Abraham's called to circumcise, he says circumcise the servants in his house. And apparently... Gentiles are included in that plan from day one, though maybe not on a large scale. But but yes, it will be an open door. It will be an opportunity. And it's amazing sometimes the nations may learn something that God's people are slow to learn. There are consequences. And, there, and, and sometimes it doesn't become evident the moment we sin. 
but there are. In verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. I think you're, I think you're a minute early on that bell, Josh. I, I need every minute I can get. Uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons that we may observe all the words of this law. I heard verse 29 quoted a lot growing up. I don't know if you did. You know, something, and, and that's okay. I, I, that's a good part. You know, when people ask about something outside the text, secret things belong to the Lord our God. And I'm all for that. But I'll be honest. It was a college teacher, and I can remember when, that pointed out, but what's the other side of the verse? Secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things we won't know the answer to. But... The things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. And for what purpose, the text says, that we may observe all the words of the law. What God, God has given us things. He hasn't told us everything. Things God has given to us are ours and it all should lead us 